Hey, this is Scott. Thanks for checking out the podcast of Grace Fellowship Church. Hope it's encouraging for you and helps you take your next steps in your faith journey. Enjoy. Welcome to the port of modern-day Izmir, which was known in ancient times as Smyrna. Today, Izmir is the third largest city in Turkey, with approximately six million people calling it home. Izmir is a beautiful and busy place, hosting Turkey's second largest port. Even in our modern world, the location of this city makes it a great contributor to Turkey's economy and provides opportunities for business and trading worldwide. But this isn't a new phenomenon. It stretches back throughout history, well before the first century. During the first century, when Jesus wrote his letter to Christians in Smyrna, it was home to over 100,000 people, and it was a strategically vital part of the Roman rule in this region. Smyrna's significance came down to three factors, its location, its influence, and its allegiance to Rome. The Gulf of Smyrna is a natural harbor on the Aegean Sea. This geographic feature made Smyrna's location on the coastline of this harbor ideal for trade and travel, and it quickly became a central hub of commerce in the ancient world. Wherever there's trade, there's money, and Smyrna became a very wealthy city. As travelers from around the world journeyed to Smyrna with their goods, they brought their culture and religion with them. And so the city became a melting pot situated on crossroads of the ancient world. The second factor that contributed to its significance was its cultural influence. Smyrna boasted a rich history of poets, authors, and other important citizens. One, for an example, is Homer, the author of two influential works, the Odyssey and the Iliad. He was born right here in Smyrna. The third reason for Smyrna's importance was the fact that it was known for being very faithful to Rome. In fact, it was one of the first cities in Asia Minor to construct a temple to worship the Emperor Caesar. Because of that faithfulness, they were not hindered by the Roman Empire, and they were left to live their luxurious life that their wealth afforded. There are a few major background pieces of information that will help us better understand Jesus' letter to the believers here in Smyrna. The first piece of information is found here, inside the Agora, or the marketplace at Smyrna. Around this Agora are various inscriptions etched into the marble and the granite columns. These engraved words were essentially opportunities to give rewards or brag about accomplishments of wealthy people or politicians or religious leaders or to celebrate the building of an impressive building. And this was just one of the ways to publicly praise or reward citizens at this time. Another means of rewarding people was the giving of laurel crowns. People could earn a crown for their conquests in battle or their athletic prowess in the games or for their strength in the gladiatorial rings. And the imagery of receiving a crown as a reward would have been really familiar to the people of Smyrna. But the value of the crown was not in the object itself because they were typically just a simple floral arrangement. The value was found in the accomplishment of an impressive feat and in the prestige of the person who rewarded them with the crown. But the average person, they would have never expected to receive a crown. Crowns were for elite athletes or war heroes. If you were a common person, it just wasn't gonna happen. And with this cultural reality in mind, Jesus wrote to the believers in Smyrna. But we will see that his approach to answering the question, who should receive a crown, stood in sharp contrast to the rest of the culture. A second piece of background information is that Smyrna was the first city in Asia Minor to build a temple to the Roman goddess Roma. In order to show their allegiance to Rome, they built this temple in 195 BC. About 200 years later in the first century AD, Smyrna became a center of the emperor worship, having won the privilege from the Roman Senate by building the first temple in honor of Tiberius. Under Domitian, the emperor at the time of the writings of Revelation, emperor worship became compulsory for every Roman citizen on the threat of death. Once a year, a citizen had to burn incense on the altar to Caesar, after which he was issued a certificate. Now, obviously, this caused great turmoil for the Christ follower in the city. Smyrna was a city brimming with national pride, influence, and strong connections to the leaders of the largest empire in the world. And there, in this city, was a band of Christians living out their faith and attempting to stand for what they believed God was calling them to stand for. The results in their lives every single day were catastrophic. 
In fact, just 60 years after this letter was written by Jesus to this church, one of the Apostle John's disciples, Polycarp, was burned to death at the stake for the amusement of the people of Smyrna. His crime? Refusing to declare that Caesar is Lord. Yet Jesus writes this letter to them with words of encouragement, words of perseverance, words that would give this suffering church the strength they needed to endure. Well, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Scott, and we're delighted to have you here. Especially if you're a guest, man, what a, what a privilege to be able to celebrate and all that's occurring here uh, this weekend. <clears throat> that was a, uh, a video by a church who sent pastors out to Turkey to research each of the seven churches that we're studying in this series. Last week, we started the series. It's called Review. And it's this reality that many times we have preferences when it comes to what kind of church we would want to be a part of. Either it's more traditional, more contemporary, it meets earlier in the day or later in the day, or how hot or how cold would it be. But what we said is really it's Jesus' opinion of us that matters more than anything. And the book of Revelation starts out with Jesus giving a review of seven churches, seven early churches all throughout Turkey. And what's amazing is that even though it was written 2,000 years ago, as Jesus gave this word to one of his best friends, John, who then wrote this letter and passed it around these seven churches, this was 2,000 years ago, and yet it's as powerful and as effective for us today as it was then. And there's a critical question that we're seeking to maybe think about and consider as we hear from each of these church letters. And that is, how would Jesus review us? How would Jesus review Grace Fellowship Church? And then also consider how would Jesus review me? And how would Jesus review you? Now, last week we started with the, the church in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was doing so many things wonderfully well. They were committed to doctrine. They fought off false teachers. They, 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 they spent time with one another. But as they did that, as time went on, they lost their first love, as the righteous brothers said, they lost their love and feeling. And so Jesus said, hey, don't forget what you've been saved from. When you think about what Jesus has done in your heart, don't forget what it felt like to love Jesus for the first time. And that love that you experience will rekindle your heart for Christ and your heart for one another. Today we're jumping into week two, the church in Smyrna, in Izmir, what we just learned about right there. As we start, I just want to ask you a question. How many of you, whether you're watching online or you're here in the room, how many of you would say, I'm a runner? I'm a runner. I, I like to run. Okay, there's a couple of them here in this place. We have a couple runners here. I, I just want to give you a confession. I hate running. Like, it, I can't stand it. I, it drives me nuts. I don't enjoy it. As a matter of fact, I have a philosophical and a theological problem with running. The first is this. You never see someone running smiling. Did you ever notice that? No one's ever like, and if they are, they're like a fourth grader or something, right? And then theologically, there's actually a verse in the Bible that talks about this. In Proverbs 28.1, it says this. It says, the wicked flee even though no one is pursuing them. <laughs> and yet running, while I don't like it, I know that it's good for me. It makes me stronger. It gives me better health, a better life. In fact, there's a handful of us that are choosing to do this electively, running in an endurance obstacle course run here in May. We just went out this morning and ran three miles together. That's, that's quite a thing, I think. It's called Tough Mudder. But actually, we, we've done this about three years ago. We had a crew that did this. We did a, a five-mile run. And this was um, in the spring. And at that point in time, there was a lot of rains that came through. If you remember a spring four, three or four years ago, like like cars were flooding out of the Home Depot parking lot like that spring. And so the course, and it's called Tough Mudder, you expect it to be muddy, right? But it was extra, extra muddy. As we started this course, you know, as you run, you're feeling pumped, you're like, I got this, and they get you all psyched to go. And then at the first mile marker, it says, congratulations, you've ran a mile, and I'm feeling really great, I'm feeling good about all of this, you know, and then you hit mile marker two, and it's like, this is so good, and then you hit mile marker three, whew, starting to feel it, and the thing is, 
what had happened was not only were mud like in the, was mud like in the pits, but after literally thousands of people ran this race, over the entire running course, there was about six inches of this like aerated, frosty, frothy, icing-like brown mud everywhere, just everywhere. And my, at the time, 37-year-old legs were just doing my best to not do that Bambi on ice thing, you know, like, like legs go like this, so I'm like, keeping my legs together as I ran. So as I came upon mile marker four and then mile marker five, the tendons and going into my hip sockets were ready to give out. Tendonitis was setting in. It felt like I had ice picks going into my hip sockets, and I was starting to feel really weary. The thing was, we had some people with us that were really passionate about running. I'm like dying on the inside, and I look at them, and they're going, isn't this great? And I'm like, no, this isn't great. But what every runner knows is this. Every runner knows this, especially long-distance runners. They all know that there's a point when you run where there's this, this, you start to get weary, and you have to push past that point. They have to learn to endure past the pain and press on, especially if you're a long-distance runner around, if you're running a marathon around mile 20. And in fact, it's, it's that ability to endure and persevere that makes the difference between A good runner and a great runner is the person that can endure. As we open up this study this weekend, Jesus has much the same kind of challenge to give these early Christians living in the town of Smyrna. He's saying to them, hey, you've been running hard. You're enduring a lot for my name. Now, I'm asking you to press on. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn in them to Revelation chapter 2. And I would say that we have some brand new Bibles under many of the chairs out there. And if you don't have one, this is our gift to you. Just write your name on the inside cover, take it back, and then bring it back in the future as well. If you have one of these Bibles, it's page 838. As we open this, one thing you need to know about this letter to the church in Smyrna is that this is one of the very few letters that Jesus doesn't give a correction or a rebuke. It's only the churches in Philadelphia and Smyrna that don't get some sort of correction. Patrick, you can pull the gain down on this. We're trying a new mic tonight. It's a little rattly. I apologize. In Revelation 2.8, this is what Jesus has to say to the church in Smyrna to the angel, and we said last week this angel just basically means messenger. In many cases, this was a human being that was carrying this message. It was the leader, the pastor of a given church. To the angel in the church of Smyrna write, these are the words of him, Jesus, who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. Now, if if you were here last week, you'll notice that Jesus has some trends as he writes these letters. He starts saying, who is writing this? Church, you need to know this person that you're worshiping. I am the first. I am the last. I am not meek Jesus. I am glorified Jesus. And in in Revelation chapter 1, John writes of this, this Christophany, this picture of Jesus that put him flat on his face, even though... He had known Jesus in the flesh as one of his best friends. But when he had known Jesus, he was meek and he was mild. But now Jesus, and he's, he's radiant and his voice is like the sound of rushing waters. And, and John's flat on his face. And that Jesus opens this letter saying, you need to know who it is you're serving and you're worshiping. I am the victorious Lord. But there's also a second meaning that was almost as significant at the last, and it's a subtle reference to the city of Smyrna. Because the city of Smyrna was known as a church that, or a city that resurrected from the dead. Literally hundreds of years prior to this, a great earthquake just knocked out all of the buildings in the town, just decimated the town. Alexander the Great and the Romans came along and they said, hey, we're gonna rebuild this city. We're gonna make it greater than ever. They were known as a city that was born out of the ashes, reborn, and they were a shining light. They said, we are the greatest. We are the greatest city. We are the first amongst the land. 
So when Jesus says, I am the first and the last, he who died and came back to life again, it was fascinating that he used those words. This is what he says in verse 9. He says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of a synagogue of, of Satan. So he uses these words. He says, church, I see what's happening. I'm not disconnected from what's going on. And it's this powerful picture that Jesus is not distant. He's not disconnected. This isn't deism that says, hey, we've got a God, but he's just done all of this stuff. And then he steps away. No, Jesus knows and he sees what's happening with these early Christians. I've heard your cries for help. I know your afflictions and your poverty. But you need to know what was happening in the city as the opening video kind of told us about in Smyrna. It was the first city to build these temples in honor of Caesar. And they built these temples to worship Caesar, this person who was just a man, but they believed that he was a God. Now, you didn't have to stop worshiping who you worshiped. You could go and have 17 different gods you worshiped, but you had to come into the city and you had to say, Caesar is Lord and worship him. And so that presented a great tension for these Christians and even the Jews at the time because as a Judeo-Christian worldview, God said, I am the only true God. There are no other gods other than me. You can't, you're not supposed to worship another God. So these Christians were in a place where they were told, if you don't affirm this worldview, it's going to go very poorly for you. They were faced with a choice. Do I declare Caesar as Lord, knowing that he's not my Lord and Savior, or do I follow Jesus with my whole heart? The, the, the challenge, as you can imagine, was this, that if you decided to not follow Jesus, it meant some things. Uh, excuse me. If you decided to not bow a knee to Caesar, it, it meant some things. It meant that you were going to be persecuted. You were going to be beaten. You were going to be flogged. Your property was going to be taken from you. If you were in a trade, your ability to trade would be greatly hampered if not taken away. And in some cases, some of these Christians, it meant that you would have your very life taken away from you. And so Jesus looks at them and says, I know your afflictions and your poverty. He's not just saying, hey, I know you get stuck in traffic sometimes. I know you're frustrated your kid didn't make the team. I know, I know you're, I know you're you know, the person that you were voting for didn't make it into office. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's saying, what you've gone through is significant, and I see it, and I, I know your afflictions. That word behind afflictions, it literally means to be crushed. Jesus says, I know that in your faithfulness of following after me, been hard-pressed, and you've lost. You've maybe even said goodbye to people that you love. I, I see it, and I know it. He says, I, I understand your pain. That's why I love Jesus as my personal Savior, because we're not talking about a God that's far off that says, you come and you worship me. I'm up here, and I have no connection to you. The book of Hebrews says that we have Jesus who was like a, a priest, a mediary between us and God, but he's not like this person who's never experienced what you and I have experienced. In fact, Hebrews tells us that he was tempted. He was, he was ridiculed. He was flogged. He was beaten. He was killed. He was betrayed. He was without sin, and so he's able to intercede for us. He's able to sympathize and empathize with what you go through with what I go through. So he stands, Hebrew says, at the right hand of the throne of God, interceding for us as someone who is compassionate, empathizing with us. But there's, there's something that I think that we don't get in this passage very easily as Western Christians. We don't understand persecution like they would have understood persecution. We don't really get it because we have the freedom to worship. Today, when you decided to do this, you didn't have to sneak your way around town, go in a 
hidden entrance and, and hide the fact that you're here today. I, I don't have to worry about getting arrested for proclaiming to you what Jesus spoke out of God's word. I don't have to worry that if I tell someone that God loves them that I'm going to be arrested or fined. But do you realize that there are people all around the world that every day they follow Jesus, they choose to put their life on the line. And they have to hide in caves because if they did it out in the open, they would be flogged and they would be arrested. They would suffer. Over the last few days, I don't know maybe if you're like me, but I've been absolutely glued to the news with everything that's been happening in Eastern Europe with Ukraine. And as I've read about what's happening politically, I also think about this passage and think about the Christians that exist in that environment and what's happened to them. In fact, one of the reports that I read out of Christianity Today talked about the Christians that have had to exist in Crimea, that it was already annexed by the Russians. And that since the Russians have been there, they've made it illegal for them to gather, to, just to schedule a meeting as the church. They would, be, they would get a, a fine every single time. If you were to go outside and share your faith with anyone, that was a fine. They would get arrested, and that had precipitously picked up under Russian occupancy. In fact, I, I think we're disconnected from this because we live in pillowy clouds of ease, but I want to share some stats with you that each month, 214 church properties are destroyed around our world. Maybe it's not a building like this. Maybe it's a hut. Maybe it's a stone building. But their, their property is destroyed. So you show up at church one day, it's there, and you show, come back, and someone didn't like what you were doing, and they just burned it. And the police don't care. The government's not going to do anything about it. Did you realize that there's 772 forms of violence committed against Christians each month that don't cause death? So these are beatings and flogs and rapes that occur regularly. Do you know that 7,500 Christians die each month because they believe in Jesus? That's 242 every day. That's something that we just don't get because we don't have to come to church in that kind of light. I shared this with you last August, but I think it's so powerful in part because it talks about some Christians in the Ukraine. There's a powerful book called The Insanity of God written by Nick Ripkin. That's actually a pseudonym of his. He works with many um, persecuted Christians, and so he chose a name that would not put them at risk. And he tells about meeting with Christians in the Ukraine that lived for decades under the Russian occupancy, under Russian and the Soviets. And how um, for them, he walked in the room, and there was a bunch of just leaders of small Bible studies. And one by one, they went around the room and they would say, I went to jail for three years. I went to jail for seven years. I went to jail for five years. In fact, in China, for them, that's their seminary. You don't get to lead church until you've gone to jail for three years. And I'm, I'm not joking. That, that's, that's their seminary. That's their credential for them. And so Nick Ripkin's there and he's just amazed by this. Now they're all telling this, and this is what the book says. He says, when we stopped to eat lunch, I gently scolded the group saying, your stories are amazing. Why haven't they been written down? They sound like Bible stories come to life. I, I can't believe you haven't bound them and recorded them in some sort of video form. Other, fo other followers of Jesus around the world could hear your stories and be encouraged by what God is doing here amongst those who are persecuted. It says, they seemed confused by what I was saying Clearly, we weren't understanding each other. One of the older pastors stood and mentioned for me to come over, and he took me to a large window in front of the home, and as we stood in front of the window, the old gentleman started speaking passable but heavily accented English. He said, I understand you have some sons, Nick. Is that true? He said, yes. And he says, tell me, Nick, how many times have you awakened your sons before dawn and brought them to the window like this one, one that faces east and says to them, boys, watch carefully. The morning is going to come and you're going to see the sun coming up in the east. It's going to happen in just a few more minutes. Get ready now, boys. How many times have you done that with your sons, he asks. Well, I chuckled. I've never done that. If I ever did that, my boys would think I was crazy. The sun always comes up in the east. It happens every morning. The old man nodded and smiled. 
Nick, for us, persecution is like the sun coming up in the east. It, it happens all the time. It's the way things are. There's nothing unusual or unexpected about it. Persecution for our faith has always been and probably always will be a normal part of life. I, I think that's what Jesus was getting at. Not just with these Christians in Smyrna. But at the end of Jesus' ministry, with his disciples, he gathers them around and tells them about what the end of the world is going to look like and what to expect in all of that. In Matthew 24, I feel like this is what God has put on my heart all week as I've been in the news, probably too much, but as I've been feeling the burden of that, not just the plight of this one nation, but about what it means for everybody and a reminder that the peace that we've relatively lived in for the last 80 years is but a blip on the whole scan of what history actually is. This is what Jesus says. He says, you will hear of, of wars and of rumors of wars. Does that sound like what we're having going on right now? But see to it that you're not alarmed such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these things are the beginning of birthing pains. And it's like the last two years, last two, three years has just felt like that. Like it just keeps getting worse and worse. Like birthing pains coming upon us. He says, then you will be handed over. Listen to what he says. Then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put, put to death. And you will be hated by all the nations because of me. Because of that. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and will deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. That's what the Ephesian church experienced. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. And the kingdom of God wants to forcefully come and, and forceful men take hold of it, Jesus says. It's going to get dark. It's going to feel brooding like it's getting worse and worse and it's going to be painful and it's going to be difficult. This leads me to a few questions as we consider this word that Jesus gives the Smyrnan Christians. What has your faith cost you? Because you chose to let your life be guided and directed by Christ. What did it cost you? Because at the end of the day, if your faith and if my faith hasn't cost us anything, we might need to do some serious consideration about what our faith actually is. Now let me explain why I say that in such strong terms. It's weird to think about persecution like that because it's so foreign for us. We don't live with it that way. But in fact, anytime you enter into a relationship with someone else, and that's what faith in Christ means, we're entering into relationship with God through Christ. Anytime you enter into relationship with someone, it's going to cost you. Think about, think about a marriage. Think about a marriage. Occasionally, I do premarital counseling, and a part of that process is to meet with them and to align and calibrate their expectations about what it means for those two lives to become one, how it's going to cost you, and you have to make adaptations. And when you are not willing to make adaptations or you make them in the wrong way, it's going to be disastrous. If you're married to someone... It's actually going to cost you something, and that's what a healthy marriage looks like. It's totally worth it. But think about this. When you say yes to one person, it automatically means that you're saying no to all the rest of the suitable people out there. To be faithful to your spouse means that you're going to say no to every other opportunity that comes around. 
It means being present with your spouse means that you can't do the same things that you did before. You used to party with your friends. You go out and hang out on the weekends. Now you're part of a relationship, and it costs you, and it means you need to calibrate to that. You used to spend all of your time playing golf or doing hobbies. You have to calibrate to that. It's going to cost you. You have to adapt to that. Being present with your spouse means that you put them first. Being married to them means that you're not going to spend money the same way that you used to. Like, that's, that happens in marriage, right? Like, I used to be able to just do whatever I wanted to do, and now, like, they want me to check in with them? What? You calibrate to the other person. It means that you're going to lay down some of your preferences, where you go out to eat, what time you go to bed, all sorts of things like that. It means you're going to take the trash out. You're going to hand over control of the finances. You may even make dinner when you don't want to. Because that's what it means to be in a faithful relationship with someone. And listen, if you met with a friend and they said, I'm getting married, but when you look at their life and they haven't changed a thing, you would say to them, something's not healthy about your relationship with your spouse. If they get married and they are going out and they're flirting with people at the bars and partying it up and keeping money on their own and doing whatever it is they want to do and they, ne they never calibrated their life to someone else, that would be an unhealthy relationship. Now listen, listen. I've been married for 20 years. I felt like growing up, I would know people that were married forever and I felt like they started to look the same after a while. And now I've been married for 20 years to Jennifer. My life has adapted to hers. And it's not this bitter thing. Life keeps getting sweeter and sweeter as I adapt to her. It fills my life with more joy and not less. But it always costs you something. That's why Jesus said this. He says... In, in Luke 9, 23, he says, whoever wants to be my disciple, whoever wants to be in relationship with me must deny themselves and take up their cross and daily follow me. So as a Christian, the, the more you walk with Jesus, the more your life comes into alignment with him, the more it causes you to sacrifice and say no to the things of the world, and the more joyful and sweet that union actually becomes. So let me ask you that question again. What has your faith actually cost you? Has it cost you anything? The second question that I want to ask has to do with pain and suffering. What are you facing today that is more than you can take? You feel like you've had more than you can handle and you're just growing weary. You're at mile marker five and you're starting to get tendonitis and you feel like giving up. It might be that parent that says, look, I've tried to raise my kid in the pattern and the way of God, but now they're out on their own and they're making their own choice and I just don't know that I can hang on much longer. I'm weary. It might be someone who says, you know, I've been holding my marriage together right now and I, I'm tired of just giving and giving and giving. I don't know that I can hold on right now. It might be that health diagnosis and you just don't know how long you'll be able to hang on. There's something that the church in Smyrna understood and something that believers around the world that are being persecuted understand, that the enemy uses persecution and pain and suffering to destroy our faith, but God uses it to build us. The enemy, the enemy says to you, you know what? It's not going well for you. God doesn't love you. Why would he ever let this happen to you? You can't trust him, so just abandon that. Walk away. He doesn't love you. You can't trust him. He wants to destroy your faith. But the opposite end of that is God uses pain to build you up, to take you places that you'd never go. Think about it. In your life, in my life, those moments where I've had the most amount of deep presence with God, the times where I've gone deeper in places I never thought I would go, I've been those moments where the pain of my circumstance meets the surrender of my heart before God, and he does something deep and powerful inside of me. And I start to see, God, this is, you, this is how much you love me. You said you'd never leave me or forsake me. You said you'd provide for me when I'm in the darkest moments, and God, you've done that, and I'm turning to you, and I'm softening my heart before you. And even in the valleys... 
God, I'm going to praise you. Now, there's a, a portion in the passage in Revelation that I didn't really highlight because I wanted to save it for right now where Jesus says this. He says, I see your afflictions, uh, your afflictions. I know your afflictions and your poverty, and yet you are rich. Why would Jesus say that? It seems, I don't know, like I just have a hard time I have a hard time with that. It doesn't make a lot of sense. How, how do you look at Christians who are being butchered and say, hey, good news, I know you're really rich. How do you look at someone who just has cancer and they're dying in the, in the hospital and say, I know you're suffering right now, but you're actually really rich. But here's what Jesus is saying to us as Christians. Look, life can get as hard as it can get on this earth. And you can still have a source of joy. You can suffer as much as any other person can suffer, but you're rich because of Christ in you. Here's what I've experienced. There's been times where I've had a lot and I wasn't suffering and I can accomplish all of this on my own and there was always something more that I wanted. But those moments where I'm suffering and I'm broken and God is right there alongside me and I'm saying, God, I... I don't care about those things. I'm, I'm putting things in perspective. The one thing that I need in my life right now is your presence to sustain me and, and, and push me through and give me the power to persevere right now. And then his presence shows up. And you know what? In those moments, I have need of nothing else. You know what you call someone who has need for nothing? Rich. They're rich. Imagine if someone came up to you and said, hey, what are your needs? I, I don't need a single thing. You are rich. Thing is, God supernaturally uses suffering. God supernaturally uses pain to give us perspective in life. He doesn't, he doesn't want, he doesn't, in this passage it says that, it, that, that God permits Satan to do this to us, to test us. God, God redeems the pain we walk through. And then he shows up in the midst of it and he satisfies us at the deepest levels. The enemy, the enemy wants to destroy our faith. God wants to build it up. And the question is this, what voice do we listen to? What voice do we listen to? Do we listen to the lies of the devil or the promises of God? What voice do we listen to? Let me tell you, when you choose to praise God in the middle of one of those times of, of challenge and pain, it's one of the most powerful witnessing tools there are. At a time when someone says, you know what, this is hopeless, and you say, I've got all the hope, when this is joyless, and I've got all the joy, they look at that and they just don't get it. They don't get it. As Christians, we're called that when life gets hopeless, we still have hope. When life is at its worst, we can still be at its best. I read about Ukrainian pastors who said, we need more Bibles right now. We're out in the streets handing these out to people. And you know what we open to and tell them about? They read Psalm 31, 21, and it says this, Praise be to the Lord, for he has showed me the wonders of his love when I was in a city under siege. Could you imagine someone walking up and saying, Why are you praising God right now? Because even though I lost my house and everything I had, and I don't know if I'm going to see my spouse again, and I don't know what's going to happen to my kids, I am praising God because his love is steadfast. The, the world looks at that and they're absolutely dumbfounded by that. It's one of the most powerful witnessing tools. And the thing is, the church got to see this played out in the life of one of their leaders. A guy by the name of Polycarp, don't name your kid that, that's a bad decision. But his name was Polycarp, and he was most likely John the Apostle's disciple. He took over being the pastor at, of the church in Smyrna. Some 60 years later, some 60 years later, we hear that the church was being persecuted, and he was faced with a decision. See, the government didn't mind that they worshiped Christ, but they were going to insist that they would bow a knee and worship Caesar. It's interesting, they called them, they called the Christians atheists. What do you mean they called them atheists? Well, because everyone else worshiped lots of gods. And they said, we're only worshiping one. So he would challenge him, get up 
and condemn those atheists, atheists, all you have to do is renounce your faith in Christ. That's all it takes. See, what, what Caesar knew is if they could bring this leader, this, the pastor of this church out in front of everyone, if he could just get him to bow a knee before Caesar, that it would just do away with this whole thing and the headache would be gone. What would you do if you were faced with that decision? You say you take it back later on, move on with your life. Would you bow a knee? But this is Polycarp. This is what he does. He looks in the eyes of the most powerful man on earth and says this. 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And this is what it says that he did. He, he so enraged the government official. He says, I'm going to unleash the wild beasts on you. And Polycarp says, I don't care. Fine then, I'm going to light the fire under you. And he says, okay. They light the fire, and the eyewitness account says that it, it looked like the wind was blowing like a sail, the fire away, so that as the flames rose, he wasn't burning, but he would look like, like a loaf of bread in the oven, unburned. And so a soldier had to go and shove a dagger through him and snuffed out Polycarp. Polycarp was saying this, look, you can make me suffer as much as you want on this earth, but I am rich. And so when Jesus writes to them, I know your afflictions. And then he writes this in verse 10. He says, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. This is coming for you. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. We don't know if that's literal or figurative, but there's going to be a period of time when you're going to go through it. He says this, be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. I find it fascinating how Jesus encourages these believers. Like, if I was trying to encourage them, I'd be like, hey, don't worry, it's not going to last forever. It's going to get better. It's not what Jesus says. He says, it's going to get worse, and you're going to suffer. What I find interesting is, what I, I find this true of other Christians and certainly myself, that I pray all the time, God, take this burden away from me. God, take this plight away from me. And yet I'm praying away this thing that God uses in my life to stretch and to grow me. Jesus doesn't encourage them saying, hey, it's going to get good. But he's going to say, I'm going to bless you and it's going to get worse. But don't be afraid. You can still be faithful. And so I think we can draw out some things for us as we stand here in 2022. The first here is this, is that we would drown out our fear with faith. We would drown out our fear with faith. Your faith crushes fear. That's what faith does. What does that look like? It means that you stand on the promises of God. It means that you stand on God's word and you would look at your fear and you would say, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the, Lord, in the world. It means that you say, well, even when I feel alone, I know that God will never leave me nor, nor forsake me. That even when I feel like everyone else has abandoned me, that nothing can separate me from the love of Christ that is in Christ Jesus. Neither heights nor depths, neither angels nor demons, neither principalities nor powers. Neither, nothing in all creation can do that. That's, that's why it's so important that you memorize God's word and you put it in your heart. It's, God's word says that it's, it's the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. It is our offensive weapon against fear in our lives. We have to drown out our fear with faith. The second thing he tells us is to be faithful until death. Fidelis ad mortem. It would be a great arm tattoo. You can take that one for free. Fidelis ad mortem. Faithful until death. And here's the challenge. Here's the challenge is that you would put your life on the line. Now, what I don't mean by that is that you go out and you be foolish and do dumb things. Because here's what, here's what the narratives tell us, the historians tell us about Polycarp is that he actually avoided persecution. He would run away. He would run away from those people that were trying to take his life. David did that with Saul. Don't be foolish. That's not what this is saying. But that you would put your life on the line, and here's what I mean by that. That you would say to God, God, I don't, I don't want to suffer, and I don't want to be persecuted. I don't know if that's coming in my future. 
But here's what I'm going to say to you, God. Here's my life. Take, take my treasure. Take my gold. Not a mite would I withhold. God, take my career. I, I'm going to lay it down before you. I'm, I'm going to put my life on the line to serve you. God, take my spouse. The thing that I love the most in this world. Take my children. As my children have been taking steps as they're in high school and we look at what life will look like for them as they step maybe out of our home, I used to, I used to joke with them. I had kids so young so that by the time I'm 50, it can just be Jennifer and I. But I'm telling you, I've changed my tune. I've told them, you can stay as long as you want to stay. There will always be a place for you. I want you here with me. I want you close. I will offer up my life to God in my career, in my paths. And if it came down to it, God, I'll give my life for you. But I'm going to keep my kids close. As I was processing that, this last summer we were at our conference for our national churches and our missions organization Encompass World Partners said, did you know that one of the greatest obstacles for people as they enter the mission field is actually that their parents don't want to let them go. So I would say, God, I, I want to follow Jesus and I want to love him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, but I'm not willing to let my children do that. And so they put a challenge before us. If God calls your children to the mission field, would, would you just let them go? Would you support them? Would you let them go? And God really rang my bell. I said, Scott, you've got some idols there. You've got something that you're putting up there is more important than me. And you're going to rob them of something, potentially. God wills it and God moves in their heart. They've got to make their own decisions about how they follow God. But you're going to rob them of something because here's what Jesus says. He says, don't be afraid. Be faithful until death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Here's what these Christians understood, that death is actually an upgrade when you're a follower of Christ. Death is an upgrade. When this life is done, Paul says to be present with Christ, to be, to, 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 to be done with this world is to be present with Christ. If I live, it's gain. If I die, I'm with Jesus. It's the best thing that can possibly happen to us. The psalmist says, precious in the eyes of the Lord is the death of one of his saints. That's the bedrock of Christianity for us, that this world is not all there is. This is a sliver of 80 million years that we get to live with Christ. And how dare we say our, you know, our children can't follow after him? It's interesting, the word that he uses for the victor's crown is not this picture of a crown of royalty like a diadem, like you born into it, and it's your birthright, but it's a different kind of word, and that word is, is this, this idea of like a, a, a victory in accomplishment. As I watch the Ukraine, and they're saying, hey, these soldiers, these citizens that are dying, they're going to get the, 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 I don't know what it's called, like the medal of Ukraine. It's like the medal of honor for them. The victor's crown. Now the thing is this, every citizen wanted a crown because it was designated for the greatest warriors, the greatest athletes, the greatest politicians, but these Christians who were the poorest, who were the outcasts, never stood a chance. And Jesus says, hey, in my book, when you're persecuted for me, you're going to get the greatest honor that you could possibly ever get, you'll ever receive. C.S. Lewis says this, he says, there are far better things ahead than there are what we leave behind. Jesus says, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. The first death is when we take our last breath. The second death is condemnation and life away from God forever. He says, that has no claim on you. It has no claim on you. So we drown out our fear with faith. We realize that death is an upgrade. The last thing that we need to do is this, is we need to pray. 
We need to pray. Here's what 1 Peter says. 1 Peter 5, 9 says, Resist the devil standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kinds of sufferings. So here's what I want to do as we pivot. We're going to spend some time in response just in worship, remembering like this is what is true for us, that the victor's crown is there for us, and we have no control over whether or not we're going to be persecuted or not, but we can make a pre-decided decision. God, I will say yes to you, and I will put my life on the line for you. As we do that, though, we want to pray for these Christians in Ukraine, for these Christians in China, for the persecuted church, and pray for that kind of fortitude for ourselves, that refining and that testing that will come for each of us. Let's pray together. Once you close your eyes, as I do, the band's going to come up and we're just going to kind of pivot into our time of worship, but let's spend some moments here. And would you agree with me in prayer? God, I want to pray for um, what is occurring across the world from a humanitarian standpoint, Lord. Um, I feel like it's this epic duel between the outcasts and the tyrants, the underdogs and the bully, and uh, so my heart's invested in that, but there are real lives behind all of this, Lord, and real terror, real difficulty, and uh, God, we pray for peace, but Lord, we know that there's no end to this. So, God, we pray that your kingdom would come, your will would be done. God, I pray that you would strike down those dictators just like you struck down Nebuchadnezzar, who had a proud heart before you and defied the living God, and you made them as mad as a cow in the field until they turned their eyes to you. God, would your kindness lead any of those to repentance? God, I pray that you'll protect those who have no one to protect them. God, I pray for the Christians that are being affected by all of this, Lord. I pray for those pastors that are on the front line. Give them boldness to, to, to proclaim the name of Jesus, great power. God, I pray that the gospel would ring as true and as clear as ever, that your kingdom, God, is a kingdom unlike any other. God, I pray for uh, persecuted Christians all around the world, Lord, and as our world grows darker, God, we don't know what the future holds, but we do know this, that you said that you will build the church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it and that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the gospel. What a glorious thing that is, God. And so even when, even when we feel that fear of like, what if the church loses its tax-exempt status? God, that will not snuff out your kingdom. God, you are sovereign. You are the first and the last, the beginning and the end, who was dead but now is alive. God, we praise you. We worship you. God, strengthen every heart that would be here in this space. God, give us that thoughtfulness, that mindfulness. God, that predecided yes to say yes to you, God. Any weapon formed against us will not prosper because you are here with us. When the darkness falls, it will not prevail. God, we love you, we trust you, we praise you. We pray this in Christ's name.